Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Why does God love you? It seems like a simple question, but what was your very first thought as the response? Was it because of something you do, or because of something He did? Check your answer again at the end of the message. Church planting resident Ryan Johnson brings us this message entitled, Adoption, the Father's Work and His Children's Joy which covers Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Thank you for joining us today. It's a, uh, it's a great, awesome privilege for me to be here with you guys today, and I just want to thank Randy for giving guys like me the opportunity to, to preach to the church, and uh, I just love how Perimeter equips young guys and girls like me for ministry. It's just a great responsibility and a great great privilege, so as I get into what we're going to talk about today, I want to share a quick story with you, an experience I had with my daughter about eight months ago. Uh, she was almost three years old. Her name is Tatum, and, and Tatum, some of you might know her, but she is very shy. Uh, she's a really shy kid, and so we were thinking about planting in Lawrenceville, and God had just made it clear that we needed to be in Lawrenceville, so we began to house hunt and look for a house, and some of you have been through that experience, and so we had the whole list of houses, and we're pulling up to the first house that we're going to look at to think about buying, and the realtor's not there yet, so we get out of the car and begin to uh, just hang out in the yard, and sure enough, there are two young girls next door that are about five and seven years old, and, and, uh, and, and my daughter does something that's just out of the ordinary. She, she goes straight toward these girls while we were uh, you know, just hanging out over here. She walks right over there and she says something that was just, it just blew us away. She goes, hi, I'm Tatum the princess. What's your name? <laughs> and we, we, Megan and I were uh, kind of looked at each other like this. We're like, what, what just happened there? You know? And, uh, and, and the two girls kind of give each other the same stare and we're like, Ugh. but then, then, then it began to uh, become clear to me where she had got that. And, and we have been talking about the kingship of, of Jesus and about how God is, we are God's sons and daughters because of what Jesus has done. And she did not only believe that cognitively, but she was also living that out of a reality. And she believed that she was a daughter of God. And it was, it was this beautiful experience that we had together. And, and I can remember just as we pulled away from that house that, that God did something inside of me there as I began to think about how she really believed that she was God's child, that she was royalty, that she was a part of the royal priesthood, as First Peter talks about. And it was this beautiful thing. So I'm, I'm not sure what you're bringing to the table as far as what you think about when you think about God as Father, but chances are you have some distorted view of God as Father because of the sinful, or sinful nature and how sin has marred us and distorted the image of God in us and the way that we see the Father. And so today we're going to be looking at, at, at spiritual adoption and what that means. So I thought it would be good to define that before we get going this morning. So this is basically just a, an adaptation from the Shorter Catechism that says this, adoption, it's God's gracious act of grafting us into his family and giving us all the privileges of being his children. And by grafting, here's what I mean. We, by people of nature, do not belong to God because of our sin. But God does this special work where he, he, he brings children that, that have been separated from him into his family through the work of Jesus. And that's what adoption is. We're, we're given all the privileges and rights and responsibility as sons and daughters of God. So later on that night with Tatum, uh, 
after the, the whole princess story thing, I, I, I got to the point of the night that's a great night for parents of young children, and that's bedtime, right? Bedtime's great for a couple reasons. The first reason is this, is that at bedtime, you know that rest is coming. Secondly, it's, it's a great, a great uh, time with your kid to just reflect on the life in the day of a, of a, of a three-year-old, to see how she saw life that day. And that particular night, I was, I was prompted to ask her a question um, that, that I think God gave me to ask her that revealed a lot about my heart. Isn't it funny how your kids show you so much about God? Uh, here's, what I ask, here's what I ask her. Hey, Tatum, why do you think Daddy loves you? And she, in her little almost three-year-old voice, said, Hmm, Daddy, you love me because I obey you. And my heart sank. There was this deep, immovable pit in the bottom of my stomach, and I was, I was frustrated, and, and, and all of these emotions began to overwhelm me. But isn't our tendency to think just like Tatum did that day, to think that God loves us because of what we do or how we behave? And the reality of that is it's such a distortion of the love of God and of the reality of our adoption as his sons and daughters. And we'll never find a single instance in God's word of God declaring that he loves someone based on something they've done. It's all on what Jesus has done for us. And so we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, not on what we do. So we're going to be breaking open the word to Galatians chapter four, in Galatians chapter 4 today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and, and turn there. And I'll give a, a little bit of brief context about the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians was... It's a book written by the Apostle Paul, and it was one of the first letters that he wrote. And Galatia was this region where there were many churches, and, uh, and in this region, Paul, it, was, it was near to Paul's heart, and I know this because he, he traveled through the region of Galatia on all three of his missionary journeys and spent some amount of time there. And in that region, it was predominantly Gentile folks, so non-Jewish people, uh, and the church was made up of people that had been converted. And, and, uh, and, you know, they were Gentiles, but they had lost the teaching, they, the true teaching of the gospel somewhere along the road. So the teaching that had come in is that they had to become a Jew first to become a Christian. So all the ceremonial laws, the, the eating and cleansing and circumcision and all that, there were, there were some Jewish folks that were trying to make the Gentile church do those things. And Paul says, this is a lie from the pit of hell. This is not the true gospel. You don't have to do those things in order for the Father to approve you and to love you. Because it's by grace through faith, it's not by works of the law. And Paul goes on to say that in Galatians. So, let's read Galatians 4, 4 through 7, and then, and then we'll dig deep into it. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, I feel like it's important for us to take a quick side road uh, because in those, in those verses that we, that we just read, it talks about being born under the law to redeem those under the law. So I want to I talk a little bit about our relationship as believers to the law of God, or, or just relationship as humanity to the law of God, rather. Uh, 
So it's important to note that in the Old Testament or the New Testament, no one has ever been saved in the history of the world by works of the law that they've accomplished. So the question then becomes, what is the law useful for? And that's what we're going to address now. Uh, John Calvin, who is a, is a very famous theologian, came up with this thing called the three uses of the law. And there have been some theologians that have come after him that have, that have given us some great word pictures of the three uses of the law. And that's what we're going to talk about now. So the first use of the law is the law as a mirror. And the law as a mirror means this, that it reveals our sin. Just like when we look at the mirror and we see, we see ourselves just as we are. We see all of the imperfections that are on our face. We see all of those things. The law reveals the imperfections in our heart. Because the law of God is perfect and good. When we, when we line ourselves up, when we look at the mirror of God's law, we see God in all of his holiness. And we see ourselves in all of our sinfulness. And you know why, we, why the law of God serves this purpose? It's not so that we can try to achieve the law of God. While God doesn't want to get rid of the laws we're going to talk about in a minute, he has not done that. But it's to drive us to Jesus, who is the perfect keeper of the law. This whole thing's about Jesus. The second purpose of the law is this. It's a curb, meaning that the law restrains sin. So the world and all of its people are not as bad as they could be. God's law has, 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 set, has set the tempo for morality for the entire world. And so the law is a curb, just like a car that, that hits a curb kind of has to be recorrected. Uh, that's what the law does for us as well. It's a curb. Uh, and then lastly, the law is a guide. And this purpose of the law really serves uh, for believers only. Uh, it's, it's the Father's love that leads us to obey. Jesus, uh, in, in John chapter 14, verse 15, says this, If you love me, keep my commands. And in other places in the Gospels, he says that, that not one dot of the law is going to fade away. That the law of God is here to stay. So, so how do we live in relation to that as believers? Well, the law of God shows us what a life of sanctification looks like. So the more that we become like Jesus, the more that our lives will reflect the law of God. God has not done away with the law. Jesus, it shows us how good Jesus really is. And then as Christ in us forms more and more and more as we're sanctified, we become more like him, our lives start to look more and more like that. So I thought that that would be good to just share a little bit about that. So that's kind of a side road. Now we're going to get on to the main thing. So let's look at your outlines uh, Adoption, the Father's work, and his children's joy. Point number one, the Father's loving work. Sent Son. So Galatians 4, 4, and 5 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. So this is probably one of the most succinct summarizations of the gospel in the Bible. God sends forth his son. So while the law shows us that we are sinners, that we are incapable of God loving us because we do not meet the righteous demands of God's love for us, God sends his son, Jesus, to perfectly obey that. And as we're going to talk about, we now are able to find ourselves in Christ, in right relationship with the Father. So we see the sacrificial love of both the Father and the Son in this. 
Here's how the father's sacrificial love plays out. God sends forth his son, his only son, so that you and I can be sons and daughters of God. So the fellowship is broken so that we can be his sons. And he places all of the condemnation that the law brought on his son so that we can be sons and daughters. I'm, I'm, I think about the, uh, the story of Abraham and Isaac, about how Abraham has been given this promise that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars, and yet he's almost 100 years old and doesn't yet have a descendant. Uh, and God gives him a son, Isaac, and, uh, and, he, and God then tells him to sacrifice his son, Isaac, but just in the nick of time, there's a ram that's caught in the thicket, and that is the sacrificial substitutionary atonement right there so that the son can live. Well, Jesus is that ram, and he is the son of God that has given us the right to be sons of God. Now, the, the, the sacrifice of the son, many people don't think about this, but Jesus had to live a perfectly obedient life. And many people say, well, he was God, it was easy for him to do. Let's read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. I think you'll have a little bit different perspective on that if that's the way that you see it. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, the church. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, in every respect so that, we, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And get this right here. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, Jesus is the great high priest, as the book of Hebrews tells us. He never rests. He sits at the right hand of God because it is finished, and he's constantly interceding for us. But he had, he had to be made like us in order to save us. He had to take on flesh and blood and move into our neighborhood so that he could save us. Because the law had left believers condemned. It had left them realizing that there was no hope. And so they in the, in the Old Testament, they longed for this Messiah that would come and stand in their place and obey the law perfectly so that they could place their faith in him to live out the law for them. And we, in turn, look back at Jesus and what he has done. So, we wouldn't know the, the depths of the Father's love if it had not been for the humanity of Jesus. Verse 5 says, In order to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So unable to come to him on our own, Jesus comes to us. He pursues us. C.H. Spurgeon has a quote, and it says this, We moved not toward the Lord, but he moved toward us. He moved toward his enemies. I want you to think about that. Our sin is so bad that it, that it places us in opposition as enemies of God. We're enemies of God apart from Jesus. That just makes the work of Jesus all the better. Being born under the law has these massive implications for humanity. And Paul uses phrases throughout Galatians like this, under a curse, under sin, imprisoned under sin, because he's, he's, he, wants to, he wants to make clear the weight of condemnation that, that the law brought as people saw their sin. But Jesus takes on the curse so that we could be set free. So it doesn't negate the responsibility for us as believers, 
but it gives us the freedom. It takes, it takes the sting out of the law. Many believers today will still try to please the Father through their obedience. But the only obedience that pleases the Father is that which flows from the work of the Son, if that makes sense. So that obedience that comes from Christ in us. So the whole purpose of God was to send forth his Son that we could be called children of God. And let's look at the second point here. The Father's loving work is sent Son and then sent Spirit. So let's look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 real quick. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It wasn't enough for God to send his Son for us. He sends his Spirit. And the Bible talks about the Spirit as being our deposit. It's being our, our guarantee being a form of assurance that we are the children of God. The Spirit, in a sense, is always whispering into our ear, it's true, it's true. You can believe the gospel. You can believe what Jesus has done for you. He is applying the work of Jesus to our lives. Notice here in this verse that it mentions the Spirit of the Son instead of just the Spirit. So why does it mention that? Here's what I think. The Spirit magnifies Jesus in us. And why does it magnify Jesus? Because Jesus cries out to the Father. We get this beautiful picture of the eternal covenant of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's how it works. The loving Father creates and sustains and sends Jesus to redeem after the fall. Jesus accomplishes the Father's will by redeeming. He does the work on Calvary's cross. He's raised from the dead. And then the Spirit applies that work of Christ in our hearts and our hearts cry back out to the Father because of what Jesus has done. It's this beautiful relationship, this beautiful community. And if we think about Jesus and his, his example that he gives us in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is one of his most painful hours, as he saw exactly what was happening, he cries out in Mark 14, 36, it says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is calling out to his daddy. He's calling out to his father. And God's spirit in us that cries out, Abba, Father, produces this freedom and liberty to obey the commands of God as we are being sanctified and made, being made more like Jesus. And think about this, when Jesus is on the cross, uh, he's He's buried in the grave, and he rises from the dead. For believers, when Jesus is in the grave, the condemnation of the law goes to the grave with him, and when he rises from the dead, it stays in the grave. The law no longer condemns us, but it can be a guide for us now because of the work of Jesus. And it's all that we would be called sons of God. So here's the question. What does this word Abba actually mean? Now, I'm not talking about the 70s Swedish pop band here, some of you that are thinking along those lines. But rather, it's this most intimate name for a dad. In English, we would say, daddy. Many people think that Abba and father are the same thing, but they're not. The word Abba is actually an Aramaic word that's been translated into the Greek language. And it, and it, gives, it paints this picture of a, a young child crying out to their father, helpless, just like Jesus tells us to, to cry out to him as a small child. That's the picture that we get when we hear the word Abba. And the interesting thing is, is that it's never used as a, as a name, a way to call out to God up until this point in the scriptures. 
But what the work of Jesus on Calvary's cross and his resurrection does for us is it unlocks the title that we can call out to God as Abba, Father. We can have this intimate relationship with him. You see, before this, it was seen as irreverent to think of yourself so close to God. But God has drawn near to us through his Son. So, we see it's never the intention of the Father to take a spirit away from us. But this also means this, that we will never outgrow our need to cry out to God as Abba Father. We'll never outgrow it. I mean, can you think, parents, can you think about your kids the day that they went from calling you daddy and mommy to dad and mom? It's kind of a sad day, isn't it? Some of you are thinking, you're like, yeah, that's a sad day. Um, that's never the intention of God. He never wants to take the cry of the Father out of our hearts. We're in Christ that the cry of Abba stays with us for good. So let's really look at the meat of what it means to be adopted as, as we look at the second point, his children's joy, which is living as the children of God. J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God, which is a great book, if you've, if you've never had the opportunity to read it, put that on your reading list. Um, J.I. Packer says this, it is a great thing to be right with God the judge, but it is a greater thing to be loved and cared for by God the Father. So what's he mean by this? Is he downplaying the doctrine of justification, which legally makes us right with God? No. He's saying that as adoption, as we, as we, adoption is how we are able to feel the justifying love of God. It's, it's the whole purpose why God did this. He didn't just want to make us right with him legally. He wanted us to be his sons and his daughters again, and for us to have the confidence to cry out, Abba, Father. In our adoption as sons and daughters, we have no reason for God to invest the life of his son in us, but it's because of his great love for us. In this adoption, God takes the only thing we have to offer, which is our sin, and he gives us a perfect relationship with him through his son. We're able to cry out, Abba, Father. As Randy often says, I love how he summarizes the gospel, we lost it all, he did it all, we get it all. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. So let's, uh, let's look at, at the implications of what it means to, for God to take us from being slaves to son, as Galatians 4-7 talks about here. I've got a handy-dandy Bob Cargo chart up here, if you'll turn your attention to the screens. Bob always uses charts, so I, I felt like I had to work one in here. Uh, so he takes us from slaves to sons. A slave meaning that, that we didn't have a name. And we, we spent our lives trying to make a name for ourselves, which would amount to nothing. But he gives us the name that is above every name, that every knee will bow to. And he says that we're in Christ. He finds us with no rights and takes us to having this restored authority and shalom with him. We were unable to carry out his will. And he restored this authority to us. He restored this authority with, our, with now our ability as Christians to, to be agents of reconciliation, as 2 Corinthians talks about, and even being able to make disciples of Jesus. I mean, that is a great authority that we have to be able to make disciples of Jesus himself. He found us with no access, and he gives us full access to enter his presence boldly. 
He finds us with no advocate to intercede for us, but he gives us Jesus who sits down at the right hand of God who never sleeps, who's always interceding for us. And we can call out upon his name boldly because he is our father and we are his children. He finds us with no voice and gives us the cry of the fathers we've talked about. He gives us this cry to be able to call out to him as Abba, Father, the way that a small child would call out to their parents. He finds us with no inheritance, nothing to our name. Not a thing to show for our lives. And he gives us everything. The kingdom is here and we are managers of God's kingdom. And he gives us everything that is his. It's this beautiful thing that we get to share in the inheritance of Christ. So what is, why am I sharing this with you is the question. And the reason is, is because these truths have completely wrecked my life and turned me upside down. Herein lies the problem for most of us, and this is my story. I've spent most of my life searching for significance, trying to make a name for myself, and begging others for approval. But God has put an end to that because of his adopting love. So here's my story. Uh, I I was the first believer in my family. Uh, I was 13 years old when, when a guy on my basketball team began to share his life with me. He began to invite me into his home and into his life. And really, I didn't even know it at the time, but he was sharing the gospel through deed and also in word. And so a peer of mine on my basketball team led me to Jesus. But it didn't stop there. Later on in high school, God called me into the ministry. And I, being the first Christian in my family, I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't have a clue what was going on. But there was one particular night that I was sitting on, the, on my bed and my Bible was open. I don't even know if I was reading it. I think I was expecting God to like put something in me just by looking at it. And it was, it was one of those times that you have you know, frustration in the Word as you're wrestling with the text. And my mom comes into my room and she falls at the foot of my bed in tears. And she says, Ryan, I need Jesus. And there that night... I was able to share the good news of the gospel with my mother. She birthed me physically, but I was able to be a part of the spiritual birth that God was doing in her. It was this beautiful experience. And it was in that moment that I started to realize that, that God was really doing something in me. Because he was really doing something in my family. My, my little brother, who's, I guess he's 19 now, um, also was a recipient of God's grace and God used me in, in his life. Then my father, he's kind of a different story. You see, between my mother and my father, there have been eight marriages and seven divorces. My life, the the image of a father and what a marriage looks like in my life have been deeply, deeply distorted. And that's part of the wrestling that I've done in my life. And so my father struggles with generational alcoholism. I mean, he's been an alcoholic as since he's been 15 years old, and it, it, has, it has never ceased. And I, I foolishly preached a false gospel to him for the longest time after I became a believer where I said, hey, Dad, if you would just quit drinking, you know, maybe things would get better. It's not that alcohol that's the problem. It's the fact that he needs a new heart. He needs Jesus. And so I began praying differently for him. I began praying that God, the Ezekiel 36 kind of thing, that God would take his heart of stone and give him a heart of flesh, a heart that loved him. And it's not that my dad is completely opposed toward the gospel. 
But God has just not given him a heart that desires to please him. And, and I pray daily for that. So in light of that, I've talked to my father, and, and I've, I've kind of ran this through him. But I want to share a story of a recent conversation that I had with him um, where God began, is beginning to really do some work in his life and in mine. Uh, it all started like this. I called uh, my younger brother, Jonathan, my half-brother, who's 19 now, and he, uh, he had decided for some crazy reason that he was just going to stop going to school the second semester of his senior year of high school. And the crazy thing is that he thought he was actually going to still be able to graduate. Well, you and I know that that's, that's not going to happen. That's, that doesn't line up. And so he gets called into the guidance counselor's office, and they break the news to him, Jonathan, you're not going to graduate high school this year. And he's broken. So what does he do? He does what we all do. He hides. He hides for three months from my father. Not, he's at home, but he's like going other places when he should be at school. He's saying, yeah, school is great today. I'm working on this test. I mean, he is, it is a lot of work to lie that much. You know what I mean? And, uh, and, and so I call him one night, and I say, John, what's going on? And he's like, you know, it's, things are good. And, I, and I'm like, no, really, what's going on in your life? And he just breaks and we, he begins to tell me the truth of what's going on. And, and I began to tell him, hey, bro, you know what you got to do, don't you? He's like, we're going to talk to God about this, but you need to talk to dad about this. And he's like, no, I don't want to talk to dad about this. See, my dad's about six feet tall, about 275 pounds. He's a big man. He's kind of a burly guy, a little intimidating. And my, my younger brother did not want to face that reality. So I pulled the older brother ultimatum on him. And I said, all right, you have three days. And if you don't tell him in three days, I'm going to tell him. So sure enough, he tells my father over the weekend, and, and see, my dad and I have kind of had this relationship where we've been more friends than anything else, and some of you guys know what I mean when I say that, and so oftentimes, my, my father will, will call me for parenting advice, and uh, I, knew ex- I knew that I was going to get a phone call from my dad immediately after Jonathan told him this, and sure enough, I did, and my dad was furious. He was so mad, and the, the, I, think, I really think the Spirit prompted me to ask him a question, and so I said, and it seems like a common sense kind of answer, but it, it led to so much more. I said, I said, Dad, why are you so upset? And he sat there for a second and he said, Ryan, because this proves that I'm a failure. I couldn't do the only thing that I was given the responsibility to do. I couldn't, I couldn't help my son graduate from high school and go on to college. I'm such a failure. And uh, I didn't say this in the first service, but here's how I really responded to him. I said, you are. And here's why I said that. I told him, because we are all failures. That's the only hope that we have is that we're failures, right? It's the only hope we have. And so we began talking more and more about the situation. And, of course, I already had the whole uh, the story. And so, but he was telling, telling it to me anyway. And, and uh, I, I made a suggestion to my dad. I said, because I knew my brother was crushed. And he was sitting probably outside of his door just waiting. He, he didn't know what was going to come next. And I said, Dad, why don't you just go... And give Jonathan a hug and tell him that you love him. Have you ever thought about doing that? And he, he started to think about it and, and he said, you know, I probably don't do that enough. And I said, why do you think you don't do that? And he began to think about his life. And he began to think about the reality that his father never showed him affection. And uh, he began to break as he was telling me about his childhood and about how he just longed to throw baseball out in the yard with his dad, and his dad just never seemed to have the time. And uh, he started crying, and, uh, you know, I'm crying too, but I'm, I'm a mess all the time anyway. So he, he, uh, 
he does one of those manly things where he's like, all right, son, well, I got to get off here. I got to go cook dinner or something, you know, and he's trying to like, he's trying to be manly. And uh, I said, don't you get off the phone with me. I'm your son. You can cry in front of me. And he said, okay. <laughs> and we began to dialogue back and forth. It was one of those moments that you just didn't want to let slip away from you. And we began to dialogue back and forth about the gospel. And, and my father said something that I'll never forget. He said, what Jesus did for me and what that means for us, that seems too good to be true. That, that can't be true because he knows all that I've done. Why does he not hold that against me? And I, I replied back to my father and I said, I wish every Christian would feel that way, Dad. I wish every Christian would be overwhelmed by the grace and the love of God that, that God has for them. My dad did not become a believer that night. He didn't pray the prayer. It's still unresolved. But I know that God is working. You know, for the longest time, I hated reading passages that talked about the love of God. My heart was numb toward the love of God, and it was because I didn't really know how to receive affection. But the Father is changing that in me. So my question for you is this, how do you see God? Is there a distorted image that you see God through? Do you see him as this eternal referee that's just waiting for you to slip up so that he can blow the whistle and put you in timeout? Do you see him as a genie in a bottle that you never really know how he's going to move and sometimes he listens to you and sometimes he doesn't? Do you see him as an angry old man with white hair and wrinkles who can't wait to discipline you? Or do you see him as a pacifist like I have? who doesn't like to be bothered and will show his fierce rage and anger against me when I do bother him? Or do you see him as a loving and merciful father that he is? Because that's, that's his intention, is that we would see God for who he is. Does God hate sin? Yes. Does it grieve his heart? Absolutely. But all of his anger against all of our sin was placed on Jesus so that we could be free to love God and God to love us and for us to find no shame in who we are and to be able to see the Father as he sees us as children that cry out, Abba, Father. You know, I've spent most of my Christian life living as a spiritual orphan. Here's what I mean by that. An orphan is someone who doesn't have a family, doesn't have a father, doesn't have a mother, I've spent most of my Christian life living as a spiritual orphan, not living like God is my father, refusing the privilege to be loved by God, but God is unearthing that in me. And it wasn't until about a year and a half ago that I realized the depths of this, and this is, this is where I'll close. My son, Caden, uh, is a little over one and a half now, and he was born in Indiana where we used to live, and uh, there were lots of crazy things going on in our life, lots of pressure that we were feeling because God was calling us to plant a church. We're trying to figure this out. We're trying to figure out where we're going to move. I mean, all of these things are happening. And here God gives us this little bundle of joy. This, this kid that can, I mean, he can light this room up with this smile. This beautiful baby boy. And when he comes out of the womb, he has a birthmark on his lip. And I swear it is the only thing that I can see on that boy when he comes out. You know why it's the only thing that I could see? It's because I was not living as a son of God. I was living a conditional life. And so the doctors and the nurses would come in, and I would say, hey, you know, uh, you think that birthmark's going to go away? You think a couple weeks or something like that? 
Is there any kind of surgeries we can, we can get done on that? And, and it, it even got to the place where people would come visit us in the hospital, and I would, I would preface the conversation with, hey, we're going to get that birthmark taken away. You know, I didn't even look at it. I was so insecure with who I was. I was living as an orphan, as someone who did not have God as their father. John Owen says this, if the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? So here's my question to you, Christian. What more could God possibly do to convince you that he loves you? What else could he do? He sent his son so that you could be his sons and daughters. He has done everything for us. And if you're in here and you're hearing this good news that you can call on God the Father for the first time, I pray that God would awaken your heart as I pray that my dad's heart would be awakened and I pray that if he is stirring in you today, that you would respond to his grace. It's good news that we can call on God as Father. It's very good news. I pray you don't take that for granted, and I pray that you live in light of that every day. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to us. You're our Abba, you're our Father, we are your children. Thank you for Jesus. God, I pray that you would begin to unearth and unsettle the hearts that are in this room that do not see you as Father, that are living as spiritual orphans. Would you give them hope? Would you give them life? That there's freedom in the name of Jesus as we can now call out to you as Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.